Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Paul Collier, professor of economics at Oxford University, director of the Center for the Study of African Economies, and the author of The Bottom Billion, Why the Poorest Countries Are Failing and What Can Be Done About It. Paul, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks very much for inviting me. Who are the bottom billion, and where are they? Well, there are a group of countries um, which add up to about a billion people. Um, there are nearly 60 of them. Um, they're drawn from all the regions of the world, but they're disproportionately drawn from Africa. About 70% of the bottom billion people are living in Africa. Um, and the, the distinctive feature of these 60-odd countries um, is that for various reasons, um, they've failed to grow over the period since their independence. Most developing countries have grown, um, and for one reason or other, these miss the boat. And so the overarching characteristic of them is, is of economic stagnation. And there's, as you say, there's about 60. Uh, and these bottom billion folks aren't just 60 nations where these people are found. And these folks aren't just not doing as well as others. It's not just – they are not doing as well as others. But it's not just their relative station that we're talking about. It's the absolute situation they're in. They're in absolute poverty. Um, some of them have actually been in, in decline but I do think that the key feature is really one of divergence from the rest of mankind. I mean, even if we dismiss the, the billion rich folk in the world, the people like you and me who are living in countries that have already sort of made it to high income level, and that, that is a billion people, um, if we just compare the billion at the bottom with the, the, the four billion people living in other developing countries, what happened over that 40-year period since independence was a growing and accelerating divergence so that by the millennium, the gap between the typical citizen of the bottom billion and the typical citizen of the next four billion had widened to five to one. So even before we look at the, the rich world, this was a yawning gap. And it's been widening um, for the last 20 years at, at around 5% a year, just between the bottom billion and the next 4 billion. And that's so it's stagnation and divergence. And that's, that, that widening is occurring because they're stagnating in the bottom, and the middle four are in nations that are growing either well or quite well. Yes, and so I emphasize that because you know, when I was a student, which is quite a long time ago, um, we tended to think of the sort of the development problem is kind of everybody except ourselves, kind of everybody except the rich countries, five billion poor people in developing countries and a billion rich. And that, that was a 
sensible way of looking at things 30 years ago, but, it, but it's not now. Um, most of the developing world is actually developing pretty fast. Um, uh, China and India yeah. are converging on the, rest, on, the, on the rich world at rates that are just historically unprecedented, quite amazing. Um, and so even, those, even though they're still poor, they won't stay poor. A lot of other developing countries have already made it to middle-income status, so a country like Malaysia. And so the, the challenge for development now uh, is no longer a world of 5 billion people in developing countries. It's this billion at the bottom. It's trying to get these countries out of this stagnation that has persisted for so long. And in trying to understand this stagnation, you identify four traps that nations that have these folks in them uh, suffer from. And, and I should mention before we go on that, of course, within these 58 nations, there are some extraordinarily wealthy people. It's just that there are very, very few of them. Uh, that's an insight I, I first heard from R.E.A. Hillman. So it's, it's the poor people in those nations we, we want to help. But there's, they've got four traps that keep them poor. Tell us what those are. Yes, I mean, um, there are probably other traps. I don't want to be um, sort of ideological about them, but I think that four big traps are the, the things that are doing the real damage. Um, and it's moving away from the notion that there is a single explanation rather to saying that there are only four that I think is the sort of the major step in, in the diagnosis uh, of the book, which is new. I mean, I just back up and say the book is really in three stages. There's a problem definition, which we've just talked about, which is this problem of divergence of the people at the bottom. There's a diagnosis, which is about the traps. And then finally, there's prescription. And the, the essence of diagnosis is to move away from um, big picture, single explanations. So I home in on these four and I wouldn't rule out that there are others, but, but the big four, one is, one is conflict, um, which is, basically comes down to civil war, coups, political violence. Um, and that is both devastating for development, is development in reverse, and it's also a trap because, first of all, it, once you stumble into these internal conflicts, they're highly persistent. And secondly, even when you come out of them, uh, there's a high risk of going back into them. And they're extremely common, which is one of the most um, depressing and enlightening parts of the book for me. Uh, talk about how common they are uh, in these, these 58 or so countries. Yes, I mean, the, the, um, and, in, and in some areas, they've actually becoming more common, that if you go back to Africa in the 1970s, the incidence of sort of large-scale violence was pretty low. And then it built up to a really a crescendo in the 1990s. Since the end of the Cold War, there's been some easing off, but, but not a lot. Political violence is still, in its various manifestations is still an ugly reality in a lot of the bottom billion societies. We've got it going right now in, in Kenya. Exactly. 
exactly. I mean, the the um, the transition from um, dictatorship to electoral competition or democracy, which we had hoped would deliver peace, has actually uh, tended to escalate uh, the degree of political violence. And so the the, the the sheer intractable nature of these problems of conflict, I think, has been underestimated. Okay, well, I want to come back to that, but that's the first trap, is the conflict trap. Give us, give us the other three. Yes, uh, the second trap, which in a way shouldn't be a trap at all, is having a lot of natural resources, valuable natural resources like oil. And in, it's, that's a paradox because, of course, it should be an opportunity. It should be great news. Um, it's the gravy from oil and diamonds and so on are sort of dwarf aid inflows and so this should be powering development forward but all too often uh, it isn't it actually um, corrodes and corrupts the politics so even where it doesn't turn the society into violence uh, it produces uh, a massively dysfunctional polity in which the political leaders, instead of supplying the public goods that the society needs, um, conduct a contest with each other um, to control the public purse. The, the public purse becomes um, a sort of tragedy of the commons in which different groups compete to control it rather than uh, the source of national public goods for the society. So that's the second trap. The, um, the third trap is, uh, is very different. It's being landlocked, landlocked without natural resources. If you're landlocked without natural resources, um, your options for development are really pretty limited. Um, if you've got natural resources and you're landlocked, at least potentially you can make good use of those resources, and a country like Botswana has done so. But if you're landlocked without natural resources, what do you do? You can't um, easily export goods because you can't reach the coast. You don't even control the route to the coast. That depends upon your more fortunate neighbors. And so around the world, um, the landlocked resource-scarce countries um, are the most impoverished and the slowest growing. It's particularly a problem for Africa. If we look outside Africa, only about 1% of the world's developing population lives in such countries. But within Africa, it's about a third of the population. Another way of saying that is that outside Africa, places that are landlocked and resource scarce haven't become countries. They've become parts of more fortunate countries. Mm -hmm. uh, in Africa, they actually became countries. And the final category of, uh, of trap um, is the countries which are um, small, have little education, and start with very poor um, economic policies and governments. If we go back 30 or 40 years, many developing countries had very poor economic policies and very poor governance. But the pace of reform away from that configuration was much faster if your country was big, big population, and if your population was educated. In effect, reform requires a, a 
more accelerated by a critical mass of plenty of educated people. And the tiny societies of the bottom billion with very little education just haven't had that critical mass. And so they've stayed stuck with these um, poor policies, bad governance, uh, for much longer than the other societies. And as you point out in the book, uh, to the extent there is an educated class, they often leave because they can do so much better elsewhere. That's right. That's right. So that globalization, which has enormously helped a country like China or India, is actually in many ways working against the bottom billion. Um, Globalization means that there are few educated people hemorrhaged to, uh, to developed countries, uh, and their little bits of, uh, of wealth are also hemorrhaged in the form of capital flight. Because, precisely because these countries are stagnant and rather risky, um, people vote with their wallets, even if they don't vote with their feet. They move their money uh, to America and Europe rather than keeping it in the country. So let's go back to the conflict uh, issue, which, again, I found quite fascinating. Um, In many of these countries, there are different ethnic groups. Uh, We spoke recently in a podcast with Carol Boudreau about Rwanda and some of the horrific uh, problems they've had with ethnic uh, conflict. And you talk about that quite uh, in quite interesting ways. And what we've learned about this, which is so counterintuitive, what you've what your research has shown is that the poorer the country is, the more likely it is to be in a, in a cycle of rebellion and counter-rebellion. Now, the standard view would be, I think many people would have the intuition, that poverty is going to reduce rebellion because there's so little to fight over. Uh, and yet you show and, and argue, I think, quite convincingly that there's a depressing supply uh, side counterweight to that. So talk about that. Yes, I think there's um, certainly there's this statistical regularity that um, the poorer the society, the slower it's growing, the more likely it is to to enter civil war. Um, and uh, in my more recent work, I've, I've consistently found that. So I'm pretty confident about that result. What's driving it is partly, as you say, the supply side, that if people, especially if young men, have no jobs, no income, no prospects, no hope, um, there's little to stop them being recruited into a rebel group. And so rebel groups find it very easy um, to attract basically teenage children, um, their prospects otherwise are pretty hopeless. Um, the, um, so that's the supply side. There's also um, the fact that in these dirt poor and stagnant societies, uh, especially small societies, governments really are not very good at providing security. Um, governments have an incentive to provide security because they can protect themselves, but they just not very good at it. They're not resourced to do it. Um, counterinsurgency is a very skilled, complicated task. I mean, it took um, both Britain and America a long time to learn the rudiments of it. Um, quite commonly, um, 
in the bottom billion, governments uh, try and repress rebellion extremely incompetently, provoking a lot of outrages, and that fuels the uh, the supply of recruits to the rebellion. But you're so very- I think it works both sides that you have a supply of rebel of, of people coming into the rebellion, and you have because it's a as it were it's there is, there is no alternative hope, and you have incompetent and ineffective states um, that can't protect the society from rebellion. You speak. Um- very cynically of the more standard argument about um, the causes of this conflict, which is grievance and the so-called root cause uh, being the, the government's oppressive. And of course, often the government is oppressive, but as you point out, the rebels often um, just do the same thing. Yes. I mean, I, I should say I very much hope I'm not cynical. I um Sorry. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no room for for cynicism in the the business of of trying to help these countries um, to prosper. Um, but nor is there room for for the sort of wide-eyed naivety um, that takes uh, a rebel discourse at, at face value. Um, of course, rebels are, are not going to say uh, we're in it for the money. Um, they're going to call themselves the the movement for social justice, peace, harmony, love of mankind, and unity. Um, that doesn't mean what that's what they're about. Um, I tried to to just find out whether whether the proneness to rebellion could be related to the degree of political repression or other obvious bases for grievance. Um, and I just couldn't find it. It might be there, but I just couldn't find it. What leapt out of the statistics was that proneness to conflict is a matter of poverty and stagnation um, rather than um, the, the sort of grievances that governments um, you'd think would be uh, uh, incompetently provoking. So, of course, in these societies then where uh, conflict is common – and ethnic conflict in particular or other kinds of ideological, whether it's justified or not, conflict is there. And there is a high probability of future conflict. The incentives to invest in the future are very small. Yes, that's right. So that, that, that's a part of the reason why conflict is a trap because um, during conflict, the economy is destroyed and even after conflict, the risks of reversion to conflict are so high um, that uh, investment is bound to be low. Um, of course, during conflict, there's, there's very little investment. The, the society is sort of hell-bent on destruction, not construction. Um, and so um, there's an economic trap um, coming out of conflict, which is that um, the society just cannot develop. Let's turn to the natural resource issue. Uh, There's a certain analogy uh, between a natural resource with relatively low extraction cost, such as oil in some places, uh, and aid, foreign aid, whether well-intentioned or not. 
in that both allow the government to capture resources uh, at a very high surplus, a very relatively low cost, high value, aid being uh, the cost of receiving aid is maybe the lobbying you do. Uh, and in the case of the natural resources, it's, it's the extraction cost or the cost of growing the coffee or the mining the diamonds. Uh, why, why are they analogous if they are? And why are they so, as you point out, uh, destructive in, in an unintuitive way since they should be a good thing? Well, I, I, first of all, I would say that they're, they're not that close in analogy. I mean, there, there is the analogy you, you point to. Um, they're both valuable resources accruing to the government that it hasn't had to raise in taxation of citizens. Um, there the analogy ends, and um, of course, aid is given purposively by the donor community, by aid agencies, um, and it's directed with a certain sense of purpose. It's uh, on the whole, directed towards governments that there's some prospect that they will use it well. Um, it comes along with a lot of advice and um, capacity building um, and conditions which try and steer it into good uses, whereas oil and diamonds just bubble out of the ground. So uh, there are many differences as well as that similarity. And as far as I can see the evidence is that um, aid is much more effective than the uh, than the natural resource revenues. Um, the natural resource revenues can be effective. Uh, it really depends upon um, whether the government is, uh, is 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 a good government or not. I think, um, as you point out in the book, the the aid that's there's an enormous temptation. First, I want to distinguish between two kinds of aid, and, and you can agree or disagree. We've had some very interesting podcasts with Bruce Buena de Mesquita on the political economy of aid. P putting that to the side for the moment, that you could think of two kinds of aid. One is well-intentioned. It's coming from a development agency. The other is really a, a part of the, a nation's foreign policy, trying to achieve something or create an ally or... or reduce some problem rather than trying to help the citizens in that country. But if we st – let's stick with the well-intentioned aid. The problem is, among many, that in these international agencies, one, there's an information challenge. They may not know what's going on in the country as well as they might. But I think you argue in the book that there's a temptation among those agencies for purely self-interested reasons of the participants to give aid to countries that are relatively pleasant to visit and, and hang out in and, and advise rather than in the countries where the bottom billion are. Yes, I mean, I think that's right. I think the, um, uh, it's certainly true of the engagement of, of uh, aid workers that um, you, the, the example I gave was of the World Bank, which is an admirable organization in many ways. I used to work for them for a while, but um, they have far more staff in the typical uh, middle-income country, large middle-income country, than they do in the societies of the bottom billion. Um, uh, on the whole, staff are reluctant to work in the tough conditions of the bottom billion societies, but that's where they're needed. Um, a few years ago, I uh, 
went uh, for the World Bank to the Central African Republic, and uh, there wasn't a single um, resident staff of the World Bank there, nor a single resident staff from the International Monetary Fund in the whole country. And yet the country was desperately short um, of people with the sort of uh, economic policy competence and skills. So they were crying out for um, for the need um, for exactly the sort of skills that the um, organizations like the World Bank and the IMF should be supplying. Instead, um, all the staff are in China or Indonesia or something where they're much less needed. Well, I have good friends at the World Bank, as I, as I know you do as well. And part of their answer would be that they focus on the middle-income con- countries because they're more likely to be productive, the resources there. But I think there's a little of, of both going on here, of both uh, productivity and, and a little bit of self-interest as, as to where it's more pleasant to be. Um, yeah, I mean, we certainly wouldn't want... The, I mean, the, the, the global organizations have got to stay global um, for many reasons. Um, but I think the balance of effort and the balance of resources really needs to shift um, to where the challenge now is, and that's the countries stuck at the bottom. Well, let's stick with the natural resources then rather than the aid and, and talk about why it is that they're so destructive for some nations but not for others. Um, certainly for as Bots- Botswana is, a, is a, a case that you mentioned uh, where aid – excuse me, where natural resource wealth, in this case diamonds, did not uh, – has been used well, relatively well. At the other extreme, you have Norway, uh, which as you point out has lots of oil and is thriving. And then you have cases where there are countries with, with oil or diamonds or coffee or other natural resources that are horrifically poor. What do we know about why those are different? Yeah, I mean, we, we know that um, governance matters enormously. Um, obviously, um, these natural resource revenues accrue to governments, and so it's how governments use them that determines whether things end up well or badly. Um, the, and so what, what turns out to matter is the initial conditions of governance. Um, as it were, if you get good institutions before you get your oil, which is what happened in Norway, um, the chances are you'll do fine. Um, if you get your oil before you get your decent institutions, um, the chances are you never get uh, decent institutions because the oil revenues and the other natural resource revenues tend to corrode uh, the institutions of governance rather than strengthen them. And And so these institutions, which are vital in determining whether public resources are well used or badly used, um, uh, if they start off bad, they never um, improve, or it's very hard to get them to improve. Some of my friends are are struggling to try and do just that in the resource-rich countries of the bottom billion, and it's a struggle. Well, we're used to that story when the government in these countries is a dictatorship. We, we understand the intuition of, you know, there's a thug, and the thug uses this flow of, of, uh, w- of wealth from this resource to finance the army, to finance uh, patronage of various kinds. What was interesting to me in the, what I learned from the book and your research is the problems that democracies have in these poor countries. It, it's not merely the 
the kleptocratic uh, dictator, but it's also the democracy uh, that doesn't work so well in these in these poor, very poor countries. Why is that? What goes on there? That what goes wrong? Yes, I think the that's been as it were the the most depressing um, evidence of the last fifteen years or so is that um, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we of course all hoped that the spread of democracy, which followed from the fall of the Soviet Union, um, would really lead to um, dramatically better uh, economic performance, as well as better political rights. It's tended not to happen. Indeed, in the the resource-rich countries, um, instead of democracy disciplining the governments, um, the resource revenues have corrupted democracy. And so we get the process that I call the the survival of the fattest, um, the Darwinian struggle amongst um, politicians in the resource-rich democracies, the Darwinian struggle for votes, um, but with no checks and balances on how they get those votes. And so they resort um, to corruption, to patronage, and, of course, as we've seen, to violence. Um, And so instead of democracy forcing governments to adopt good policies in order to win votes, it actually drives them in the other direction. Um, With a dictatorship, at least you might happen to get a decent dictator, um, although very few bottom billion societies have. Um, But in the resource-rich democracies, unless you start with good checks and balances on how the electoral process is conducted, you get a race to the bottom. And part of that... Kenya is not a resource-rich country, but we've just seen that this week. Um, of in the absence of effective checks and balances, um, the incumbent president um, can win the election uh, without um, without getting the votes. Yeah, um, it's very depressing. Uh, all the evidence is that he got fewer votes than his challenger, um, but he was still able to declare himself uh, the the victor in the polls. Well, just as a, a, a digression, I want to come back to the natural resource issue. That kind of um, corruption, dishonesty, electoral fraud happens in more stable democracies. Um, I always think of Lyndon Johnson's um, rural Texas vote coming in at the last moment when he needed it to, and that appears to be what's going on in um, Kenya. You get you know turnout of 140 percent, really just a wonderfully responsible electorate when they can vote more than once. Um, and yet in our society, those kind of um, – and in, in the developed world, those kind of uh, events or embarrassments, here they are just decisively destructive. Um, but, but on the natural resource issue, one of the ways that it becomes destructive is the way that public spending takes place. Talk about that, the, the public budget, uh, what government provides with the revenues, e- even yeah, in a I democracy. Mean, I mean, that's the heart of the matter is um – the opportunity provided by lots of natural resource revenues is to provide uh, a good standard of public goods that benefit the nation. Um, and uh, for that to happen, um, uh, 
the winning electoral strategy has to be to offer the nation, um, as it were, good, good public goods. What instead you get um, is, uh, is an identity politics and a patronage politics in which the winning strategy for a politician uh, is, to, is to, as it were, buy a component of votes uh, through patronage, bribery, especially bribery of a few local big shots. Uh, and so the, the national public goods get squeezed out of the system. Um, the, uh, the public purse becomes what's, uh, what's called a, a common pool resource, something to be looted. It's, it's, uh, we have the phenomenon of the tragedy of the commons, um, uh, a resource which nobody regards as their own. And that's what we see with the public purse in these societies. It's a tragedy of the commons, the looting of the public purse by organized political groups, rather than um, the winning electoral strategy being an appeal to the national vote. We had a podcast a while back with Bruce Yandel. I recommend to our listeners on the economics of the tragedy of the commons. But the general phenomenon you're talking about is common with all democratic processes. And it's it, the irony, as you point out, is that usually competition would force um, electoral competitors, polit- politicians, to serve the electorate. And here it seems to work in the opposite direction. The puzzle is – and I, you say something about this in the book the, – the puzzle is – that's true in every democracy. In every democracy, there's a temptation to give away uh, parts of the public purse to buy votes that are not very helpful to the general interest and that serve the special interests of key electoral constituencies. We have that. We have that in the United States. We have it in the UK. The, the The question is, why is it so destructive in these poor countries? And I, I think the answer that you give is is the role of checks and balances. So talk, talk about that and, and why – talk about what's missing and why it's, it leads to that destructive competition. Yes, I think we've in, – in promoting democracy in the societies of the bottom billion since the end of the Cold War, we've really forgotten um, what, what democracy is really about. Um, in a mature democracy – Democracy really means two two things. One is electoral competition. In many ways, that's the easy bit. Uh, and the hard bit um, is the checks and balances which limit how governments can use power. Electoral competition just tells you how governments acquire power, and checks and balances place limits on how they can use that power. Now, electoral competition is frankly, dead easy to get established because the incentives for political parties to contest an election are overwhelming. And so you can get elections going in the most unlikely settings of Iraq, um, Afghanistan, um, you name it, we can hold an election there, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, Checks and balances are a whole different uh, ballgame because they're not events in which uh, parties have a strong incentive to participate. Checks and balances are processes. And what's more, they're a sort of special kind of public good. That is, everybody has 
some benefit from them. And with, as with any public good, if everybody benefits, um, nobody has an incentive to supply them. With checks and balances, it's even worse because the one group that really doesn't benefit from them is the government itself. Yeah. And so uh, the government actively opposes the construction of checks and balances. One so, this, so unless the checks and balances are in place before you get electoral competition, you never get them. And what are some? And that's, and that's what we've seen playing out is um, uh, a highly destructive form of electoral competition. Destructive precisely because the checks and balances have never been put in place. What we got was after the end of the Cold War was instant democracies, and the only aspect of democracy you can do instantly is the elections, which has a certain visual and and. Um visceral appeal. You can see them. You see the people voting. It makes us feel good. Uh, but describe, when you talk about checks and balances, what do you mean precisely? What well, are some, there what are, are, some there are a whole range of, of checks and balances that, are, uh, that a mature democracy has. Um, quite a few of them are economic. For example, um, the budgetary process has to be transparent. Citizens have to be able to know um, how money is being spent. Um, and then there are a lot of constraints indeed on how it's spent. It cannot be embezzled by politicians um, without that running the risk of it being detected. And if it's detected, it goes before independent courts, um, which can prosecute the politicians involved. And so there's a, a process of public scrutiny um, which reveals what the budget is about. There's an investigative process um, which sniffs out um, corruption and embezzlement. Uh, and there's a judicial process um, which can, which can uh, pass judgment and punish uh, infringements. And a key part of that, of course, is the what we call, without much thought, a free press or free Absolutely. media. Absolutely. So that in addition to the sort of, um, uh, well, the free press is often called the third estate. So there's the, uh, uh, the executive and the legislature and the free press, which, em which empowers citizens. Um, and uh, so there's a whole host of um, checks and balances. And indeed, uh, mature democracies have been setting up more and more of them over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, better systems of informing citizens, better, better systems of scrutiny, and a more devolved power. Um, for example, the, the move towards independent central banks in a lot of countries. Um, the bottom billion societies have had none of this. You give um, the rather remarkable example of Peru, where on the surface they had a free press, but in fact it was um, it only looked free. Oh, Peru is a is a splendid story because it actually it's it's an event which gets under the skin of um, of the polity because the government um, set about um, corrupting the the free press and in particular it bribed all the newspapers, the radio stations, and the TV stations um, except for one TV station which was too small to bother with. And that was the TV station which brought the government down because it broadcast film uh, of, um, of bribery. Um, 
and that brought people onto the streets once they saw this film, and that brought the government down. So the Peru story both shows how the government corrupted the media and the enormous amounts of money it was willing to spend doing that, but also how it was right to do so, because the one little bit of the media it failed to fix was the bit that brought it down. One last uh, question on natural resources. Uh, it, in the beginnings of the Iraq, uh, the aftermath of the military part of the Iraq war, my colleague, Nobel laureate Vernon Smith here at George Mason, argued that for the future of Iraq, what would serve it well would be to disperse the revenue uh, from oil into the hands of the citizens uh, through some kind of stock sharing scheme and that this would reduce the potential for the natural resource curse that we've been talking about. Uh, the Bush administration, I think, considered it. Uh, supposedly they did. And they eventually decided against it on the grounds that, that, this, that the whatever nascent democracy would come out of the post-war uh, era would want those revenues as a form of uh, creating stability. It hasn't worked out that way. We don't know how it'll work out in the next five or ten years, of course, but I, I think the solution or the potential for privatization of these resources when it is politically feasible is, is a tremendous step in the right direction. Do you agree? Absolutely. Um, at a, at a, of course, Iraq's got enormous resources at a more modest level in the typical resource-rich African country. Um, what I've been advocating is um, this is school bursaries, so the, 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 the scheme which Mexico introduced called the Progressive Scheme, whereby some of the oil revenues are used um, just to, uh, to reward children going to school. Um, that's administratively very simple uh, and very effective. Um, it gets money into the hands of ordinary households, and it gets children into school. And it keeps it out of the hands of folks who would compete for Absolutely. it in destructive ways. Absolutely. Um, let me um, offer one overview comment, and then I want to turn to the potential uh, the prescriptions you talk about. Uh, it seems that most of these problems ultimately come down to bad governance, not just bad governments, but bad governance, but bad inst bad institutions. Either an unstable, an unstable government, a government that cannot protect property rights, a government that cannot prevent conflict. Without that piece being solved, there, to me, it doesn't seem there's much that can be done uh, from the outside. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes, I think that, I think that is fair. That um, it, I think the problems go beyond bad governance. I think the agreed. Um, the landlocked, uh, resource-scarce countries are just intrinsically problematic, even where the government is good. Um, there's just not many opportunities. Um, I think uh, small, dirt-poor societies um, face real logistical problems of insecurity, um, even where the government is, uh, is pretty competent. So I think it's not just a matter of bad governance, but I think uh, the move from bad governance to good governance surely helps a lot. So let me let me read a, a lengthy quote, uh, which I think sums up uh, much of what you've been saying, and uh, I think is rather eloquent. 
And it's about how change in the bottom billion must come from within. And this um, comes from the preface. Here's what you wrote. Quote, unfortunately, it is not just about giving these countries our money. If it were, it would be relatively easy because there are not that many of them. With some important exceptions, aid does not work so well in these environments, at least as it has been provided in the past. Change in the societies at the very bottom must come from within. We cannot impose it on them. In all these societies, there are struggles between brave people wanting change and entrenched interests opposing it. To date, we have largely been bystanders in this struggle. We can do much more to strengthen the hand of the reformers. We can do much more to strengthen excuse me, we can do much more to strengthen the hand of the reformers, but to do so, we will need to draw upon tools such as military interventions, international standard setting, and trade policy that to date have been used for other purposes. The agencies that control these instruments have neither knowledge of nor interest in the problems of the bottom billion. They will need to learn, and governments will need to learn how to coordinate this wide range of policies. End of quote. Now, how might the tools you mentioned, military interventions, international standard setting, and trade policy make things better? Okay, well, let's, um, let's start with some uh, international standards. They sound to be the, the weakest, superficially, motherhood and apple pie, but they're not. They're vital. Um, I'll give you just a couple of examples there. One is standards for using natural resource revenues. Uh, at the moment, there are basically no standards, no international standards. Um, we've got the biggest natural resource revenue bonanza uh, in world history happening right now. Huge amounts of money flowing into the societies of the bottom billion. Um, last time that happened in the 1970s, uh, it produced no um, sustained uh, benefit. This is from the um, high price we've of gotta, We've oil. got to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself. Um, international guidelines, even if voluntary, can help the reformers in these societies to rally round a few clear decision points that really matter. For example, uh, are these revenues being saved? Are the processes of investment using the revenues conducted in a fashion which uh, cuts out corruption and which um, helps to make uh, wise, shrewd investment decisions? Uh, or is it being frittered away on white elephants like last time? So there are a few decision points where international guidelines, even though voluntary, would really be useful to the reformers in these societies. So that's one area. So Another area is, as we've seen in Kenya just this last week, um, some international standards on how you conduct elections um, would be really, really helpful, um, backed by some enforcement in that case. I think the, the natural resource guidelines can be entirely voluntary, um, the guidelines on how we conduct elections really need to be backed up by some sanctions. Um, we just cannot have the sham of uh, presidents um, claiming to have won elections that they've lost because the, the process of these elections, these sham elections, is itself hugely destructive. Look what's happening in Kenya now. And so some international norms, of course, we've got international observers, 
but at the moment we've got no teeth behind those observers. Um, we could use uh, a much stronger enforcement to try and um, ensure that these elections worked uh, less destructively than they're doing at the moment. Well, it's a nice idea. I, I'm worried about the likelihood of that success of that. And I, as you point out, it's the most modest uh, part of these prescriptions. Make sure that our listeners understand you're, you're talking about just, as you say, international standards that we might, we being experts or um, outsiders, would develop as guidelines and it would allow reformers to point to these guidelines when the government was failing to live up to them. As so, essentially, would as as I understand it, you're hoping that stigma and shame would would help. But in the case of the elections, we have the observers on the ground from the outside, and there's just so much at stake that stigma and shame just go out the window. Yeah, so, I think in the case of elections, we actually have to back it up with sanctions. In the case of um, natural resource revenues, um, we've got good evidence that even voluntary standards uh, can still have effect. There's a, there are two um, pretty new standards, both about four or five years old. Um, one is called the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which is a voluntary international standard about the reporting of revenues. It's very modest. It just says governments should report to their own citizens um, what revenues they're getting. Um, the amazing thing is that a lot of governments have now signed up to that. And so that very standard, even though voluntary, is separating the sheep from the goats. The goats are being revealed for what they are. Uh, it's also a natural rallying point for reformers in a country to say, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you signing up to this standard? Um, the other similar international standard was the Kimberley process in diamonds, uh, which was about certification of the origin of diamonds. Uh, again, that process, very recent, but has already had a dramatic effect um, every diamond producer in the world is now a part of that system. So well, there's evidence that even voluntary things um, can can be pretty effective. Well, as you as you point out in the book, and I think it's a it's a very elegant example. Uh, De Beers, the largest uh, provider of diamonds in the world, was shamed uh, by the publicity around the diamonds source of diamonds being. Just violent and, and horrifying, because they have an incentive. Uh, if people get sufficiently appalled by diamonds, uh, we might actually consider using something else as a way of of showing our affection uh, for our uh, spouses, which is one of the strangest uh, emergent customs that there is. But well, that's that's the way it is. From being very fast, from being part of the problem to being part of the Correct. solution. So I want to I want to go back though to the government case. It, it would seem to me, and I. You, I don't think you talk about this, and I, I haven't read about it anywhere. It would seem to me that, as you say, it'd be nice if governments would voluntarily sign on. And there's always this issue of causation and these questions. Perhaps the nations that have signed on voluntarily would have been more transparent anyway. But even even if that's not the case, even if it has had some effect, what's really driving this is the provision of information. So one way to think about this is that 
wouldn't it be nice if, as it was the case in Peru, in Peru the the evidence of corruption came out because of a a little hole in the um, in the government's uh, noose around the neck of the the media. Somehow there was a little opportunity for escape, and that that small station, which hadn't been bribed, revealed uh, what was going on. But in, in these other situations where natural resources are being used in such a horrifying way, it's nice to think about the possibility that we as outsiders could, at a minimum, provide information about that. One of the things interesting in the book that we haven't talked about, and I think it comes up in this question, is uh, naturally people inside these countries, although often desperate for help from the outside, are also skeptical of the motives and, and accuracy of the people on the outside, and, and the governments often use that skepticism uh, to its own advantage to hide the effects of reform or to make reform look horrifying, and you give some lovely but sad examples of that. So is there any opportunity for providing information, just information, not, not, a, not the standard, not military intervention, but just providing information to the, these societies that might help them put pressure on their own governments? Yes, I think there is. I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity there. Um, but, um, I mean, the limits, I think, are that, in the end, these are internal struggles within these societies. Um, and so the, well, the criterion by which we should navigate is always what helps um, the people who are fighting for change, um, what helps the, the beleaguered reformers. Um, and the provision of information for them to use, um, indeed, uh, can galvanize the society. When the um, Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative was launched, um, my friend Ngozi Nkondjo Iyala, who was then the reforming finance minister in Nigeria, promptly announced, we're going to do that in Nigeria. And she published uh, in the Nigerian newspapers uh, the money that not only was coming in, but that she was passing on to the 36 uh, state governors of Nigeria. And the day she did that in the newspapers, um, two things happened. One is newspaper circulation hit its all-time high because Nigerian citizens wanted to find out what was happening to that money. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, she got death threats. <laughs> so she knew she was on the right line. Oh. Um, reformers in these countries need courage. Um, and the amazing thing is there's a, there is a supply of just such people. What All we have to do is get behind them a bit more competently than we've been doing to date. What can we do in the area of trade policy? Okay, with tr trade policy, we can do quite a lot. Um, trade policy, but, but it's very counterintuitive trade policy. It's the area of economic policy that is kind of least well understood, I think. Um, the the countries where trade where our trade policy really matters are the um, the countries which are coastal but resource scarce. And if you're exporting oil, trade policy kind of doesn't matter. At least our trade policy, you can sell your oil anywhere. Um, it's the countries that haven't got the oil, say a country like Kenya, um, that really needs our help. And it, what we can do is help it to sort of shoehorn it into the, the global game. And the, the global economic game now is especially trade in 
labor-intensive manufacturers, the sort of activities, simple activities which create jobs. Um, even a country like Bangladesh, which is far from being well-run, has created nearly 3 million jobs in textiles, exporting textiles. If Kenya could have 3 million jobs, it would transform the economy. Uh, the, where our trade policy comes in is that it's hard for a country like Kenya to break in to the market because Asia is already established uh, in the market and there are scale economies in producing these simple manufacturers. And so Asia has lower costs of production than a country like Kenya, not because it pays its workers less, but because it's already got the scale of exports which drive costs down. The infrastructure and, so, and, and other... Yeah, that's right. And so, paradoxically, what, what Kenya needs is a phase where it's got a temporary advantage against Asia in our markets. And for that, we just need, as it were, to give preferential access temporarily uh, for a country like Kenya. Now, America's already doing it uh, with a, something called the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. And that's working very well. Um, it's, um, it's got its limitations, but even with its limitations, uh, African exports of textiles to America have increased sevenfold in just five years. That's, the, that's big stuff. Um, Europe's got a supposedly similar scheme, and the European scheme is pretty hopeless. It doesn't work. Why is that? Um, the devil with all trade policy is in the detail. And the European scheme uh, covers the wrong countries, uh, and uh, it has the wrong restrictions on products. So, for example, Kenya um, isn't included in the European scheme. Um, uh, Somalia is. If you wanted to set up a textile factory in Somalia uh, and export to Europe, that's just fine, uh, but not Kenya. Unfortunately, not many people do want to set up textile factories in Somalia just yeah. at the moment. Of course, right at the moment, they probably don't want to set up in Kenya either. But as you point out, in, in the case of Madagascar, which is a very inter extremely interesting example in the book, uh, the interaction between any of these um, uh, improvements has to again face the bad governance, bad government issue. So in case of Madagascar, Madagascar was thriving despite the fact that it was a latecomer into the, the global, uh, global game. But uh, as I think you described, an election came along where the president decided he didn't want – that he, after he lost, he decided not to step down, blockaded the ports, and um, the next thing you know, all those jobs disappeared, and they're not coming back for a while. Yeah, you got it. He, um, the president was naturally outraged that the electorate had voted against him, and so – Reasonably enough, he blockaded the, uh, the port for eight months with his supporters. That, of course, killed the uh, export activities. Um, so uh, the great leader managed to uh, destroy his own economy and uh, a quarter of a million jobs in the process. It's very sad. Uh, what about agricultural policy? You, you reference it very briefly, but it's an issue that we've been talking about here uh, 
on econ talk, and we're going to talk more about it down the road. But give me your thoughts on what yes, the developed I, nations. Yes, I tended to underplay agricultural policy in the book, partly because it does get a lot of exposure, uh, and partly because, in a sense, I'd like to see the bottom billion moving on from agriculture a bit. Um, they need to either make natural resources work much better than they've done, uh, or they need to break into manufacturers where there are the scope for million upon million of job. Um, but of course, our agricultural policies um, are uh, somewhere between suspect and disgraceful, depending upon how you look at it. The, uh, our agricultural policies um, are doing a, a number of damaging things. One is they're um, subsidizing um, production in our own societies and closing off the opportunities for production, for competitive export production in the societies of the bottom billion. Uh, if you take um, American cotton, um, at one stage um, there was even a proposal that Chad should be persuaded to give up producing cotton. And that can't, uh, that can't make sense. There's not much else you can do in Chad, um, whereas there's lots of other options in America. Um, so the subsidies um, disadvantage uh, the few export opportunities that some of these countries have got. Um, at the moment, the, um, the, the rather, uh, in my view, crazy policies um, on stuff like ethanol production, the, uh, the attempt to um, sort of turn agriculture into an energy producer, uh, is having... Um, dramatic effects on world food prices. Uh, and that is very bad news for a lot of societies of the bottom billion uh, because a lot of these societies are food importers and for poor people, about half of their income is spent on food. So policies which inadvertently have the effect of slamming up global food prices uh, can be very destructive. Um, I mean, they can even become politically very damaging. Just imagine what would happen in America if uh, the price of half of consumption goods uh, suddenly exploded. Uh, it would become a political issue. The, the, the puzzle is, I know it's, it's rather complex. Of course, a lot of the people in these nations are also farmers. Um, it, it's, it's imaginable that for some of these folks, those higher food prices are, are making them much better off. As as the higher oil prices make the governments better off. Yes, some some farmers are food sellers, but um, on the whole, the um, the sort of things that farmers tend to um, sell for export uh, are not food, but they're um, beverages like uh, coffee, tea, cocoa, um, sugar. It's that. So the the export crops tend not to be the basic foods. Um, a lot of these countries tend to be importers of basic foods. And expensive corn is very tough on, on a lot of the world's uh, poor people, which is one of the results of the ethanol push. I'm sorry, I missed that. Expensive corn 
is uh, very hard on people who eat a lot exactly of corn. Exactly so. Exactly so. And ethanol production has driven up the price of corn recently. At exactly least that's so. what they that's say. That's the, uh, the issue I was getting at. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we're out of time. Any uh, closing thoughts? You're much. Let me let me give you the op- the following opportunity. You're somewhere. It appears between. Um, uh, Jeffrey Sachs and, and William Easterly, and you describe this a little bit in your book. Sachs is an optimist about the potential for aid, and Easterly is a pessimist. Um, you're, a, you're you're sunnier than than Easterly, but you're not as sunny as as Sachs. Make the case for being optimistic over the next ten twenty years. You've described some prescriptions. Some of them may help. Some of them may not end up working. Of course. Do you see a, a better future for the bottom billion of, over the next 20 years? Yes, I do. I think the, um, first of all, I don't want to be sort of positioned in this uh, Bill and Jeff spectrum. Sorry um, about that. That's a cheap shot. <laughs> I think the, uh, there are, the message of the bottom billion is there are a lot of instruments beyond aid um, that will be very effective. And so this aid debate is, a, in a way, a bit of a sideshow, a bit of a diversion. Um, the bottom billion have got to succeed. Um, we, we can be part of that success. They've got to, be, they've got to succeed because the, the prospect of a billion people continuing to diverge from the rest of mankind is frankly unthinkable. Um, over the course of the next 20 years, there's a lot that we can do in our societies to increase the chances that the, the people struggling for change within these societies will win their struggle. We've just got to get more serious about it. Let me close with what America did last time it got serious about a major development problem, and that was the development of Europe after the Second World War. America knew it had to recover the European economy uh, and European society because the alternative was that that these societies would tumble into the auspices of the Soviet Union. And America did get serious. It changed its trade policy from protectionism to openness to European markets and European products. It changed its security policy from isolationism to putting 100,000 troops in Europe for 40 years. It changed its governance attitudes from saying, um, we don't interfere with you, you don't interfere with us, to systems of mutual governance, such as the OECD and the encouragement of the European community, as well as a big aid program, Marshall Aid. We've got to do all four of those things. Um, At the moment, we're not facing... Um, the reality of the, of, the, of the enormity of the problem. Um, the analogy is not what we did in the Second World War, after the Second World War, it's what we failed to do after the First. After the Second World War, the risks were blindingly, obviously, in America's face. Very soon after the Second World War, there were nuclear rockets aimed at you. After the First World War, the risks were there, but they were amorphous, and so they were never faced. That Paris Peace Conference of 1919 ended in failure to address the issues, and 20 years later, it all blew up. 
And so we've got to get serious about these risks. If we do get serious, of course the problem is fixable. And of course, in 20 years' time, the societies of the bottom billion will look very different from now. Well, I hope, in our hands. I hope you're right. My guest today has been Paul Collier, professor of economics at Oxford University and the author of The Bottom Billion. Paul, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks very much indeed. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.